Well, there they were, a little band of misfits standing there together before this blazing, fiery, transforming display. I'm talking about Dorothy and the Tin Man, the Scarecrow and that cowardly lion. They'd made their way all the way down this yellow brick road, meeting adversaries they could not have expected, but also gaining friends they never knew they'd find. Only to get all the way to that emerald city to meet the wizard they'd been waiting for, and there they are to present their case for the gifts they need, to get the things that life hadn't yet given them. When suddenly, if you'll remember the movie from days ago, the fiery display turns into mayhem when the, the curtain gets mixed up with the man pulling the controls and gets pushed aside and he turns around and haphazardly pulls it shut and the loud voice of the wizard says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Well, here in Matthew chapter 17, a different band of misfits gets to peek behind the veil, gets to take a look at the majesty of God hidden in the face of Jesus Christ. Except what they find is not some man behind the curtain pulling the levers only to disappoint them. What they discover in Matthew chapter 17 is one of the most dramatic displays in all of Scripture, one of the most glorious beholdings, so much so that it, it sits beside uh, the birth the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus as the, the most dramatic events in his life as the church has remembered them. The transfiguration, they've called it. A great mystery, a story so dramatic that we struggle to explain why it happened or what it means or, or why Jesus found it important to take Peter and James and John up that mountain. But nonetheless, in Matthew 17, our text today, if you'll follow along, begins... By telling us that it was six days later that Jesus took with him those three and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, every one of the gospel accounts includes some little detail about how long and how much time had passed since the previous verses. Each one reminding us that this mountaintop meeting where we find Peter, James, and John is not an isolated event. It comes on the heels of several great confessions in the life of Jesus. You see, about a week earlier, back there in chapter 16, Jesus had asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And to that question, the disciples are able to recite to Jesus what had been coming back in some of the latest opinion polls in Galilee. They say, some say you're John the Baptist, some say that you are Elijah, and some say that you're a resurrected prophet from ages past. And Jesus turned and said, but, but who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter gets to offer us that, that grand confession, you are the Christ of God. And in that text, we get this great confession that Jesus is the Christ, but Jesus goes on further in verse 21 and 22 and, and to tell them what this means exactly, that he is the Christ. He tells them that because he is, he has to go to Jerusalem, not to be crowned, but to be crucified. 
Not to be inaugurated, but to suffer. He says, I must go to Jerusalem, and when I get there, I will suffer many things of the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. The disciples, he tells them, I will be killed, but I will be raised on the third day. The disciples don't seem to have even caught that last clause that he would be raised on the third day. They're all hung up on that first part. They're astounded to hear the Messiah, the Christ, predict his own murder. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus says to the disciples, He doesn't use covert speech. It's not cryptic. He doesn't use flowery mechanisms to try and persuade or manipulate people into following him. He simply tells them the call to discipleship is a call to suffer with me. To take up your cross, he says, and to go in my way. And as he does this, he knows that the disciples are shaken by this invitation. This call to suffering discipleship is hardly what they'd expected. They did not foresee a a Messiah being crucified. So he tells them why you should accept the invitation despite the suffering that the invitation entails. He says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul. And he closes that scene in chapter 16 by saying, but some of you, some of you will see the kingdom before you experience death. And it's in light of those words, that difficult prediction, that impossible teaching, that that story about suffering, these disclosures that Jesus had made that he decides to take Peter and James and John with him up the mountain. By themselves, we're told. Now, whenever there's a mountain in the Bible, you might expect that divine revelation is coming. It's happened more than once in the past. And we don't get told which mysterious mountain it is that they've decided to summit on this day. The tourists have picked one in Jerusalem, probably because it's close enough for a taxi ride. But there were three or four that it might have been, each one with its own good reasons. Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon, most likely. And we don't know which one it was or how long it took those men to climb up it. But what I know is that there's not a view in all the world that could have compared to the spectacle they were about to see. Whatever dramatic, beautiful, sweeping views of Galilee they could have got from on top of that mountain, the only view that mattered was what they experienced in Jesus himself. God has a way of doing that, maybe as an act of grace for all of us. That he takes us to these mountaintop experiences in our lives and makes himself known so that we can endure the suffering, the life that has to go on down below. Maybe you've had one of those experiences in your life where God has revealed himself in a special way or or called you or, or urged you along in unique ways. And verse 2 tells us he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. And transfigured is such a strange word. I'd venture to guess that it hasn't made it into your weekly dialogue a lot lately. 
It's one of those Bible words that's made it into our vocabulary because we've chosen to use it here, but it's not really in our everyday speech. The Greek word for transfiguration is metamorpho, as in metamorphosis. Metamorpho is about a change that wells up from within. It's a change of the the inmost nature that must be visible from the outside. You picture that old rugged cocoon that houses that small caterpillar, something ugly on the inside that's transformed and then bursts forth into some kind of new and beautiful creation. It's a, a metamorphosis, a change from the inside that suddenly makes itself known on the outside. Now, the Greeks had a, a different word, metaschizo, for an outer change, a superficial change just on the surface. That's not what's used here. No, it's, it's that inner change. Jesus is morphed right before them. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus metamorphosed into humanity, that he was transformed into humanity, that he took the form of a servant. And this experience here is like the reversal of that experience, that the Jesus who was transformed into an earthly body, whose, whose humanity veiled the divinity within him, is suddenly reversed. They are seeing Jesus not as something new, but as Jesus as he, as he truly is. You see, the real miracle is not that his glorious nature manages to burst forth in Matthew chapter 17. The real miracle is that he was able in every other circumstance to disclose the power held in his bones. John would go on to say, we beheld his glory. Peter would write later, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And I wonder this morning, If the glory and majesty of Jesus as the great and divine Son of God is something that your eyes have beheld for themselves, or if you've only heard about it a time or two from others. Either way, the sight of this Jesus transformed before them was was so hard to describe that all three synoptic gospels pick a different metaphor to do it, each one trying to, to tell us what this would have looked like. It's why it's so confusing. Matthew says, His face was shining like the sun. It was so bright. There's a good chance this all happened at night after this long hike. I picture their eyes not even adjusted for daylight, much less the bright and radiant hope of Christ. Mark describes the dazzling white clothes of Jesus as whiter than the strongest bleaching agent could possibly make them. Luke compares those clothes to a lightning flash right in front of them. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Two Old Testament figures, as if the flash of lightning wasn't enough, suddenly people who lived 900 and 1400 years ago are standing there with Jesus. You you can imagine the face of the three disciples who had journeyed up on this hike looking around and saying, I thought there were just four of us, but now there's six. Who are these people? They didn't carry any of the water up here. They better not drink it. It's common for most to think that these two particular people represent on this mountain the the law and the prophets, you know, all of the the Old Testament revelation coming to meet Jesus on that mountain. And that may be the case, but these two are also historic Old Testament figures who had met God on a mountain of their own. 
And perhaps more to the point, we find Jesus surrounded by two people who had already prophesied about his life. Moses had spoken about a prophet like him who God would raise up to reveal the divine will. And both of them were prophets who were initially rejected by the people but later vindicated by God. One taken up to heaven, the other going to be with God. Neither one in Jewish tradition really experiencing a a typical death but both being shown to have been faithful to God. It's as if they come to Jesus to say, In our suffering, we found him to be faithful. And in your suffering, he will be faithful too. Some traditions don't call this the Mount of Transfiguration. They actually call it the Mount of Explanation, which I think is a helpful word for us because in reality, There's only one person shining in this story. It's Jesus at the center. And we're tempted to think that Moses and Elijah, because they're talking with Jesus, might have been there for him. But I think it's clear from this text that the whole thing happens not for Jesus, who himself is shining in the middle, the divine one, but for the three who sit and watch in amazement. And for the many more like us who would read this story and discover how glorious Jesus is. As if it weren't enough to be blinded by the radiating glory of their Lord, now they watch him talking with two giants of their own spiritual ancestry. Two giants, one on each side, who had known the sustaining presence of God. And most of all, they were there as a reminder that the weight of all of history is now coming to a point right here, right now, not with Moses, not with Elisha, but with Jesus. That without him, all of history is a mystery. All of history is a a lock without a key, a violin without a bow. And now he comes and he makes it all complete and whole and makes sense of the world for you and for me. And he stands there transfigured before these three disciples as if to say, I know that suffering stuff was hard to stomach, but I brought you up on this mountain to remind you that the suffering servant is still the majestic Messiah. And I promise if you'll believe that my glory and my suffering are but two sides of the same coin, you can walk with me and there will be an end. It will not be an end of suffering only, but an end of glory. When as the prophet Habakkuk says, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like waters cover the seas. And that's when Peter gives you an invitation to come to the Bible's text a little more plainly. And feels free to utter utter something so simply obvious, the, the understatement of all time. Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. This suggestion is a little perplexing. There's more than one explanation of what Peter is getting at, why he might be uh, tying into the festival of booths that was to come or playing with the idea of the tabernacle that Moses built beneath the cloud that spoke to him. And, And why is there one for each one? We don't know, but we do know that Peter's certainly still looking at things from a human point of view. And the last thing that Peter wanted to do was go back down that mountain and keep going on that road, not to the Emerald City, but to Jerusalem, where Jesus seems to be pointing them. 
And if he can just stay up here on this mountain where things seem so glorious, anything but suffering and death, anything but a cross, Peter seems to say. And we, like Peter, want to live out of the memories of being up on the mountain with Jesus instead of moving on to the next mountain that he calls us to. And it can be tempting to come even to the most glorious of places, the places where we meet with God and forget that the meeting on the mountaintop is really about the valley down below, where in a moment Jesus will take these three disciples and have them follow him where the others are sitting impotent, unable to heal a boy without their maker in their midst. And Jesus will use this moment not as a place to set up shop and stay forever, but as a commissioning and empowerment to send them back down to where life really happens. And I imagine that's why Matthew includes this comical little phrase in the story to correct Peter. You see it there? While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold, a voice of the cloud said, you know, most of the time when Jesus gets asked a question like this or approached with dialogue, Jesus responds. Very seldom in the gospels will you find him spoken to and not speak in return. It's as if God says, it's okay, I'll take this one. And the voice booms, interrupts Peter in his tracks. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Only twice has the voice of God boomed from the sky in this way. The first at his baptism with the same message echoed here, except added this time that little phrase, listen to him. Listen, God seems to be saying to what he told you down there. That the way of the Messiah is the way of the cross. And that you must take up yours. And that if you will lose your life for his sake, I promise you, you will find it. This odd and marvelous scene sticks out in the middle of Jesus' ministry as if to remind us that in a world crowded with so many voices, some voices that shout in anger at you. Some that whisper convincingly about a different way to live. Others that wax eloquently or convincingly about how your life ought to be ordered or what you ought to believe about the world. That in a world crowded with noise, God's plea to his disciples is to listen to him. Not to Moses, not to Elijah, but their eyes are pointed to the Christ. Listen to him. Like he does with Peter and James and John, Jesus comes to us in our times of dismay, our times of doubt, when the suffering seems like too much or the dark times seem to dominate, and he says, I'm still the God of glory. I'm still the Christ who's transfigured, the one who's risen from the grave. Listen to me. Listen to him, God says, that the way to redemption, the way to life is to the cross. 
And when the disciples heard this, it says they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. It was an unnamed children's minister from our church staff who told me about the time he was his school's mascot. It happens to be my alma mater too, so I'm familiar with the large yellow jacket suit that he traipsed around in as an ambassador for his fine university. In one particular game, he was greeting the children as all good mascots do. And with those giant bug eyes like saucers and antennas, he looked down at the child and thought, you're gonna be happy about this. And it's like a 50-50 shot, as you know, uh, with that kind of costume. The terrified child is having none of it, completely mortified, as you can imagine, at a giant yellow jacket trying to speak to him and and thinking in his right mind that I ought to console this child, as a a good future children's minister should. He then uh, removes the giant bug head thinking, I'll let him see there's a a man in here who can comfort him. I'm, I'm not a yellow jacket. The child fell to the ground in in horror and dismay when not only was a giant yellow jacket here, but his head comes off (laughs) and you can see the man he's eaten. (laughs) The disciples see Jesus transfigured before them. They hear the voice of God. They're told to listen to him about the suffering that he's talked about. And the Bible tells us they fall face down. They say, this is terrific, as in terrible. This is awesome, as in awful. This is more than we can take. It's more than we can stomach. I'd rather the Jesus that I wanted, not Jesus as he is. And Jesus comes to us too and says, listen to my words as they are. You can't make them what you want them to be. You can't bring Jesus alongside the life you already lead and hope him to bless it and send you on your way. He calls you to see him in suffering and in glory and to believe in that Jesus, the only one there is, the Christ. And he reaches down to comfort them as they're horrified at what they've seen because it's not what they knew to be true. And he says, get up. Maybe another way to say it that might point you to some biblical language further on, be raised, he says, and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, all three synoptic gospels in the story in the same way that they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Moses is gone, Elijah disappeared, but Jesus remains. And seeing only him, they went down that mountain because the place of transfiguration is to prepare us for the place of service. Every mountaintop meeting in your life is an opportunity not to live in the memory or to set up camp there, but to be sent back down to reality where God belongs and longs to use that, your experience, to transform the world. It's not a mask or a costume or a man behind a curtain that the disciples see. They see Jesus as he is, that his suffering really is his glory. That he's the real thing, two sides of the same coin. The one who must suffer is still the one filled with glory. The one filled with glory is still the one who must suffer. And six months later, this experience would lead the disciples to their own transformation. 
When on another mountain, they would behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Only this time, not on Mount Hermon, but on a mount at Golgotha. Here, Jesus is surrounded by two celebrated saints, but on the cross, he'll be surrounded by two criminals. Here at the transfiguration, Jesus' garments glisten in glory, but at Golgotha, his garments will be taken from him in humiliation. Here, a bright cloud overshadows the whole scene, but there at the cross, only darkness comes over the whole land. Here, Peter blurts out a declaration, but there he will know only denial. Here, a voice of God himself declares, this is my wonderful son, but at the cross, it will be his executioners who confess in surprise, truly this man is the son of God. And if you would listen to him, you would hear him saying today that he wants to meet with you too. He wants to lead you up to that mountain so that you can see the God whose majesty and radiance is almost blinding. He wants you to see his power and authority, to name him as Lord and King, and to find that in the sharing of the suffering, a glory this world knows nothing about will follow. We too must have our eyes opened and minds transformed so that we can discover the Christ whose cross is glory and whose only glory comes through the cross. We can be transfigured, transformed, so that in the midst of these endless voices that yell at us, we can listen to Him. We need to be transformed. Until lifting up our eyes, we, like the disciples at the end of this story, see nothing but Jesus and Him alone. Let's pray together. Father, what a majestic and moving and dramatic story you invite us, not necessarily to understand or to figure out, but to simply behold. And so we place it before us, your word your life, your shining glory, your suffering. And we pray that we would make it ours as well. May the Jesus we meet in the Gospels and the words that he proclaimed be the only words we listen to. Not Christ as we would have him, but Christ as he is. And may you meet with each one of us that we too might leave today changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.